Um, at the beginning of the year, uh, we always revisit our vision statement that, that uh, Marshall's already referred to, that we exist for the glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass, and we look at all that that means every year. We keep coming back to it so it's not just a tagline um, on letterhead or something like that, but that it's something that actually um, informs everything we do around here. This year... Um, this year, we are using Matthew 28, a passage commonly referred to as the Great Commission, for, um, to, to, to uh, rethink our vision statement. Um, so if you were uh, not with us last week, we preached verse 18. Um, I preached verse 18, um, and we used that to talk about the fact that we exist for the glory of Christ. Uh, this week, we're going to move to the horizontal element of our vision, um, that we exist for the good of the bluegrass, an outward focus, and we will use verses uh, 19 and um, the first half of 20 for that. And then um, we have a confidence statement. We, we have a vision statement, glory of Christ, good bluegrass, and a confidence statement that we have, um, that we do all things with uh, dependence upon uh, God's Spirit. Um, and prayerful depends upon God's Spirit. And so I will preach um, that last phrase, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I will preach on our confidence statement next week. But that will be at our main campus. Marsh will be preaching here next week on something else to get you ready for his series that he's going to do down here. But if you're tracking along with this, would love for you to go online and listen to uh, what I have to say next week as I kind of complete a three-week series on the Great Commission. But let me read let me read the whole thing here, and then we will uh, pray and then get into it. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Help us, O oh God, to see wonderful things from your word, impress eternal truths on our very real lives. Um, we do pray, yes, that you would inform our minds, but much more than that, that you would um, stir our emotions and that you would transform our lives, that this would lead uh, to application, serious application, application that makes a difference to how we go to school and go to work tomorrow. Um, Lord, that, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, humble us where we need to be humbled, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Uh, we trust you, Holy Spirit, with the application, and we trust you, Holy Spirit, uh, to give you the strength that I need to preach uh, your word one more time today um, and, and to do so with all that I have. Um, help me to be faithful to you, Jesus. I want to honor you um, where I don't. Forgive me and do not hold it against uh, your people. Um, but we do pray that you be pleased with these words and um, use it for your glory uh, in your name for the good of those who are gathered. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, I have a lot I want to say tonight, so if you don't mind, we're just going to jump right into our passage. Um, the Great Commission, if you're unfamiliar with... Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this is a very familiar passage to uh, Christians. It's commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Um, and, and so you, it's well known, and I, I'm willing to bet you've heard, a, you've heard a sermon or teaching, or maybe you've even taught this passage before. But I also, as common and well known as it is, I also believe it's one of the most misunderstood passages. 
And so I want to really spend time working with the text uh, this evening, making sure we comprehend what Jesus is saying here, and I guess uh, more importantly, um, applying it to our lives, what this means for our lives. Um, to say that we exist for the good of the bluegrass is to essentially say we exist for a particularized version of the Great Commission. And that's, that's what I want us to see this evening. So we're just going to jump right in. Um, I, I'm, we're going to do this in two ways, by looking at the command of Jesus and the strategy of Jesus. So the command and the strategy. Here's the command, verse 19. Go. Stop there. That's it. Um, we're going to look at one word in this point. Because it's that important and the implications of, the, of it is that important. The, the main imperative verb of the verse is to go. Everything else that we're going to look at this evening is describing how we should go. But first and foremost, the command is to actually go. But notice go is not alone. It is therefore go. Go therefore. And that matters a lot. The command to go is, um, must not be separated from what we explored last week. And it's the word therefore that connects last week to what we're talking about this week. Jesus says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What we said last week, if you were with us, you'll remember this, um, is that Jesus is saying there that he owns heaven and earth. I own heaven and earth. But we talked about how it doesn't look like he owns heaven and earth. And this is the dilemma of heaven and earth, is that Jesus owns everything, but everything is in rebellion to Jesus. So what, what is Jesus going to do about that problem? What, or, or what does he plan to do about this dilemma? That's where the therefore comes in. Everything belongs to me, therefore go. So let me, um, from the beginning, let me simplify the thrust of the Great Commission for us. Um, I'm going to state it as simply as possible. Jesus, Jesus owns everything, but it doesn't look like Jesus owns everything. Therefore, go and do something about it. That's the Great Commission. Now, we're going to talk about what he wants us to do about it in a moment. But I want to dwell here on that first word and its implications, the word go. What are the implications? of the word go. And in particular, I want, I want you to consider whether this is an apt description of the way um, our churches and you individually imagine cultural engagement. When it comes to our engagement with the world, I want to talk about the, what he's saying when he said go, and I want you to ask yourself, is this a really fitting description of our mindset? What we need to understand is that the word go is an offensive word. When I say, offen but when I say offensive, I don't mean it's ugly or, or, or mean or distasteful. I, I literally mean it is offense. Offensive. It assumes, in other words, that we're playing offense here. This is, um, this is the last week without football. Hallelujah. Um, you know, I don't get many amens at uh, our main campus. I actually got an amen when I said this the last week without football, which uh, that's got problem, problematic in many ways. But um, so, yeah, the fast is over. The feast begins next weekend. Hallelujah. 
Um, I think I think football is the greatest game ever. We can argue about it. You can you can do your soccer thing, and I'll prove you wrong. But what is compelling about the sport, and what makes it the best sport, is the uh, the strategic battle between offense and defense. Um, there is no other sport where that clash is more pronounced, more obvious. I mean, it's really simple. You have offense on one side trying to advance and, and defense on the other side trying to stop that advancement. Well, at the risk of sounding trivial, and, and it does, but it, it gets the point. If you were to imagine the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this world, if you were to imagine the, the, the gospel's light versus sin's darkness, if you were to imagine that playing out on the football field, I want to ask you this question. Who's on offense in that? That matters how you imagine it. Is the church on offense or defense? How you answer that question says a lot about how you view your calling and the church's calling in this world. What we see in the word go is that Jesus thinks we're on offense. But I think most of us imagine that we're playing defense. Go is not the operative word in our minds and in our churches. I think it would be more like defend, survive, endure, <laughs> um, perhaps even retreat, hide, protect, hang on. <laughs> but Christ's expectation is go. General Mattis, our, our Secretary of Defense, was once asked, what keeps you up at night? And it's a really fascinating question to ask the Secretary of Defense. You know, you know, every, you know, you know all of the top secret confidential threats that are out there. You know all the stuff that would scare people like me to death. You know it all. So out of everything that you know, what keeps you up at night? His answer was brilliant. He said, oh, nothing. My job is to keep them up at night. Now, I'm not trying to turn this into kind of a church militant thing. That's such a problem in itself. I'm not trying to fuel that. But, but do you get that paradigm shift there? Do you understand the difference? It will, dramatically, it will dramatically change the way we conceive of our mission in this world. That the powers of darkness and the forces of evil and the means of injustice should be terrified about the followers of Jesus Christ. Should be worried about us. And let me particularize things even more for us. All forms of evil in the bluegrass should be very afraid of Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. I'll particularize it even more. All forms of evil and injustice in downtown Lexington should be really afraid of this gathering. When Christ says go to the nation, that should not be interpreted as everyone's supposed to be a missionary to another nation. The point he's making is that he wants all the nations back because, because he owns all the nations. And so what that means is that he could be calling you to another nation to, to make disciples. Perhaps that's true. But what it probably means is that he is calling you to go to the nation where he has placed you. That he is calling your disposition towards where he has you to be one of go. And so we particularize our vision that way to where God has us. Our part in the overarching command to go is the bluegrass. And the point I'm trying to make here 
is that we are not on defense to the powers of darkness at work in the bluegrass. We're on offense. To exist for the good of the bluegrass necessarily means we exist to undo that which is not good for the bluegrass. So what is harmful and evil within our beloved community, within the community of the people that God has commanded us to love. What is harmful and evil here should be terrified of Taste Creek Presbyterian Church, not the other way around. But how? How do we go? I wanted to really dwell on the nature of go that we are on offense, not defense, but if we are on offense, then what is our strategy? How are we to go? That's where the details of the Great Commission come in. We've seen the command. Let's, let's look now at the strategy. Okay, verse 19. Let's continue on. Go, therefore. Here's a strategy. And make disciples of all the nations. And that's it. Nothing more, nothing less to his strategy. His grand plan to reclaim the world is to make disciples throughout the world. And, and make no mistake, that's not just to save souls throughout the world. When he said, he doesn't say, go, go get people saved in all the nations. He doesn't say, go save the souls of all the people in the nations. He says, make disciples. And what he's saying there is, followers of me, disciples of me. He is talking about the, the full intentions of his mission that he literally intends to fix the world. Cultures, institutions, businesses, neighborhoods. He owns it all, not just the souls that fill all of these things. He owns all of these things. So when he says, I own heaven and earth, therefore go and make disciples of, of all the earth, he is implying that he believes making disciples will not just save the souls of disciples, but will literally fix the world. Simply put, Christ's solution to creation's fall is Christian disciples. Now, if you find yourself skeptical about the power and effectiveness of such a strategy, that it's just as simple as make disciples and that's going to fix the world, then what that reflects is a shallow view of discipleship. There are um, two qualifying words that Jesus gives which serve as his description of discipleship. Um, can you get, get there on page 7? Can you locate the two participles here? A participle is an action that is used as an adjective, uh, an ing word. There are two participles here, baptizing and teaching. Christ views making disciples as baptizing and teaching. That's his discipleship plan. Now again, that may not seem very powerful to you, but that's because we fail to understand the significance of each of these. And so I want us to understand, to understand what he means by make disciples, to understand discipleship according to Jesus, we have to understand how significant baptizing and teaching is. So let's dwell on each of those. Rightly understood, baptizing and teaching is going to redeem the world. So let's look at each. Baptizing. Jesus says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I believe this is by far, by far the most misunderstood aspect of the Great Commission. It is so much more than just the act of Christian baptism. Um, if you view baptism as merely an individualistic act, my, my individual statement that I am making um, 
that is completely disconnected from uh, church, from God's people, um, or something like that, then you will not understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Um, when Jesus talks about baptizing the nations, let me tell you what he's saying there and then I'll, I'll show you what I mean. When Jesus talks about baptizing the nations, he is talking about building his church throughout the nations, throughout the world. Baptism, as we just saw, could not be more perfect, was Zach's baptism. Baptism is the initiation rite into Christ's holy institution on, church, on, on earth. We call it the church. Who are God's people? on earth? Who are these holy set-apart people of God on a mission from God? How can you tell us apart? Well, we are members of His church. The church is His institution, His organization, His society, His um, nation, it's even called in Scripture. Um, I understand the, the devaluing of the church in our day, but historically speaking, and certainly when, what Jesus is doing here, um, the church is the thing that Jesus came to establish. So who are the members of the church? The answer to that biblically is the baptized. Baptism at its core is the entrance into the church. Just as circumcision served as the initiation ritual into Old Testament Israel, so baptism serves as the initiation ritual into the New Testament church. So when Jesus tells them to baptize the nations, he is telling them to build his church throughout the nation. The two are one and the same to Jesus. What he's doing here, he's already told the apostles, I'm going to build the church through you. What he's doing here is he is instituting for the first time, like he instituted communion in the, in the, in the upper room, like we say every week. Well, here he is instituting the sign of his church, the entrance into his church that, he, that he's telling his apostles to go build in all of the nation. Now, if that's what he's saying here, I said all of that for this. If that's what he's saying here, do you now understand the power of this statement? If making disciples, if making disciples literally means building a global institution throughout the nations whose purpose is Christ's glory and creation's good, then now we're talking about something really powerful. In fact, Jesus explicitly says about the church, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is a statement of offense not defense. The church, the, the imagery is that the church is storming the gates of hell and those doors will not be able to withstand that storm. So you by yourself, doing your individualism faith thing, getting baptized, completely disconnected from church, that's not powerful enough to fix the world, okay? You're not that impressive. Nor is an unorganized, organic, disconnected collection of people powerful enough to fix the world, but the church. A corporate institution of which you are a tiny yet very significant part of has proven and will continue to prove to be the greatest redeeming force on the planet. So what he's saying here is go build a global institution that will change the world. That's all bound up in baptism. Okay, now let's consider the second part of simple to discipleship, teaching. So baptiz baptizing them and teaching. 
Once again, we fail to realize the significance of what Jesus is saying here. If you imagine teaching as merely cognitive education, then you're going to miss the point here. Typically, when we think about discipleship, and when people think about even this passage, when we think about discipleship, we imagine it as taking someone who doesn't know a lot about the Christian faith and teaching them information about the Christian faith. And so in this way, discipleship is essentially an information dump of Bible and doctrine and so forth. Now, I do not in any way minimize the importance of Christian education, okay? Um, if you know me, and certainly the culture of TCPC of this church is, uh, we want to resist the anti-intellectualism and, and even the um, anti-doctrine spirit of our age. Um, I, I do not like that. Bible study, theology reading, doctrine teaching, systematic catechizing, like we do every week here. All of these things are very crucial to discipleship. But here's the, here's the important point. Not as an end in themselves, but as a means to a far greater end. And that end is explicit in verse 20. Teaching them to what? To observe all that I have commanded you. Maybe a better translation would be teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It doesn't say teaching them all that I have commanded you. Fill the world with Bible studies. It says teach them to obey all that I commanded you. Observe. If Christian discipleship only teaches about Jesus without teaching us how to obey Jesus, then it isn't Christian discipleship. Teaching about Jesus is only a means of empowering obedience to Jesus. I'm going to put it more strongly. If teaching only remains in the head and doesn't overflow into the life, then the teaching is worthless. And I chose that word intentionally. This is very important for our tradition in particular, okay? I'm speaking to... Uh, um, if, if you're not familiar with our tradition, not familiar with our church and all this stuff, you can just check out here. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here as, as, as uh, theology nerds. Um, this is very important for our tradition. The Reformed Church is filled with a lot of people who know a lot of stuff and do very little. If you know a lot about Jesus, but you do not obey Jesus, then biblically speaking, you know nothing of Jesus. Christ says, teaching them to obey all I have commanded. Now, again, do you see how powerful this is? Now that we've defined teaching to obedience, do you, do you now see how powerful this is? There is zero power in a people who know a lot about Jesus that will not change a community, that will not change the world. In fact, Satan knows a lot more about Jesus than you. But there is unmatched transformative power in a community of people obeying Jesus in the world around them. A community like this, obeying Jesus, will transform the world. Now, it may be intimidating to hear Jesus say to you, teaching them to observe, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, because he commanded a lot. And that might feel a little bit overwhelming. And... And we do need to constantly learn all that Jesus has commanded, all that he said. Constantly imagine what it would look like to obey him in that, to, to live that out in our lives. But I'm going to make it really simple for you because Jesus makes it, makes it really simple for you, okay? 
There was once a moment where he was asked, out of everything that you've said, out of all of the commandments, out of all the teachings, out of all the law and prophets, tell us what is most important. Sum it up for us, Jesus. You know what he said? You know what he said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That sums up all of my commands. That is a vertical calling. Love God with every fiber of your being, heart, soul, mind, strength. And that is a horizontal calling. Love your neighbor with the same devotion that you love yourself. And if any of you are like me, you love yourself a lot. With that same devotion, love your neighbor. So put it all together, okay? A universal, global, holy institution, the church of Jesus Christ. When I say church of Jesus Christ, by the way, I'm talking about um, not, not the Presbyterian church. We're not that arrogant, okay? The church meaning all the traditions. It's, it's glorious diversity. Um, the, 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 the Catholic church, the little C Catholic church that we say in our creeds, not the Roman Catholic church, but the little, the universal church, all of its traditions and all of its glory. A, a universal, global, holy church baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, obeying Christ's command to love God and neighbor, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, can and will redeem the world. More specifically, a local church, a local manifestation of the, uh, of, of the greater church, a local community of baptized believers, TCPC, in a particular nation, the bluegrass, Obeying Christ's command to love God and neighbor can and will redeem that community. So let's pause here for a moment to talk application. Here is a question I want you to consider. Um, who are you in this passage? This is, a, this, is, um, this is another common way we misunderstand the Great Commission, okay? Um, yes, it is right and true to view yourself from the perspective of the apostles here, getting commissioned by Jesus to go make disciples of the nations. That's, that's how the passage is always taught and always understood. I've taught it that way, and there is nothing wrong with that interpretation um, at all. You are to go make disciples for Jesus, evangelize the lost, unite them to the church through baptism, that they may be taught how to obey all that Jesus commanded. Yes, it is right to interpret the passage that way. There's also another way to view this passage, though, that makes a point that we really need to understand. We are the fulfillment of this passage. That is, we are the disciples that have been made. The Great Commission worked, and it is working as we speak. And we are the fruit of that commission. When Jesus said this to his apostles, this land of ours, this nation of ours was completely unknown. And certainly you were completely unknown. And yet here we are, disciples of Jesus Christ in a nation, an unreached nation at one point. Here we are. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is to see yourself that way. Yes, of course, from the apostles, go make disciples, but also as the, as the actual disciples. To see yourself as that way, I want you to see as a powerful vision for your life. 
What I'm pushing against here is the interpretation of the Great Commission that the only power here is if you're one of these missionaries that goes to a nation and makes disciples and all the stuff that, that, that is an application. But another very powerful application is that you're a disciple that's been made. And I want you to know that that's significant. Here, here's what I'm saying. You, as a baptized member of a local church learning more and more what it means to love God and love your neighbor is a high, noble, and powerful calling. The very vision that Jesus has of reclaiming the world for himself. And I want to conclude by reminding you that it's actually going to work. Let me, bring it, let me bring it back to football one more time. I'll, I'll chill on the football stuff the coming weeks. So you don't have to worry about it. I'm not going to do it every week. But let me ask you another question. I asked you earlier if the church was an offense or defense. Now I want to ask you this. Um, who's going to win? Who's, not, not just who's winning, but who's going to win? Do you know how important that is? Um, if a team goes into a game convinced that they will lose, then they have already lost the game. And nobody should know that more than Kentucky fans. <laughs> if you go into the game expecting to lose, you're going to lose. So listen, I know that it looks like to us who are tempted to walk by sight, not by faith. Those of us who are tempted to walk by what is seen, not by what is unseen. I know how it looks. It looks like we're losing and that losing is inevitable. But this fails to remember the promise and power of the one giving the commission. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. And that means his followers are on the winning side. And by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, I know how things look. I know this looks like a silly um, gathering um, of a people who need religion as a crutch. I know this um, may come across as very small and insignificant compared to what's going on in our greater world. But you need to know that things are not as they seem. That Jesus is risen from the dead. He is the owner of heaven and earth. He rules and he reigns. And though it looks like he is not triumphing, he has triumphed and he will triumph. And my dire warning to you would be you want to be on his side, not against him. Because his side is going to triumph. Not in a militaristic way, not in an angry way. We will triumph with the causes of love, but we will triumph. So... All authority in heaven and on earth is his. That means his followers are on the winning team. I want to return, uh, if you're with us, I want to return to the eclipse illustration from last week. I'm going to milk that thing for one more sermon. I said that Jesus, here's how I set it up. Jesus owns all things. He is preeminent over all things. Um, 
as the sun is preeminent over our skies, but it doesn't look like it because the fall is like an eclipse of his preeminence and ownership. It is casting a shadow over all creation so that it doesn't look like Jesus reigns even though he does. That was the illustration. I said, tomorrow, I'm in the middle of the day, it's gonna get dark, and it was a perfect illustration. And then the next day, I got my eclipse glasses. The entire illustration was ruined if you were in Lexington. I. <laughs> I know all you total eclipse travelers say it was the greatest thing ever in Lexington. Um, we, it, got like a, it was like a cloudy afternoon. <laughs> Very disappointing. And do you know why? This is what I did not anticipate. Uh, apparently only 5% of the sun is, is able to break through and light up the world. Only 5%. Now that ruined last week's illustration, but it served up this week's. <laughs> I know TCPC is a is small in comparison to the bluegrass. I know that the number of people in the bluegrass who gather in local churches and try their best to follow Jesus' teachings and, and, and make disciples is small compared to the rest of the world around us. I know when you look at this present darkness, you are tempted to be overwhelmed by its vastness and pervasiveness. But friends, we have something going for us. Our side is led by the one who owns the bluegrass. Our side is the light of the world, and a little bit of light expels a whole lot of darkness. Who is going to win? The answer, without a shadow of doubt, is Jesus Christ. He is risen from the dead. He will have what belongs to him. He owns the bluegrass, and whatever, despite what your cynical hearts may say, one day the bluegrass is going to look like it. Let's be found faithful in our small part of getting the bluegrass there for his glory and the good of the bluegrass. Let me pray. Lord, give us strength to run this race faithfully, to love you and love our neighbors, expel our doubts that looks at current circumstances with fear, and teach us, O oh God, that you reign, and one day the world will look like it. May we in our generation, in our time, in our culture, in our context be found faithful in the calling um, to be a part of your church and to obey the teachings of Jesus. There's a powerful thing, Lord. Help us to remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.